Chapter Twenty of White Rose of Weary Leaf by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty. Amy loved a nursery, nursery low chairs, nursery high fenders, and the hygienic absence of bibelots and heavy furniture stuffs that usually distinguishes an apartment consecrated to the use of the young. She would sit sometimes of an evening in this plain, low-ceiled room and think. She never dreamed. The patient fire, hedged in by its protecting rampart of dull wire and gleaming brass, the bare boards of the floor, strewn with a homely litter of toys, soothed her with absence of teasing decoration. There is often a sense of repose to be found in the neighbourhood of young animals, washed, fed, and assuaged. The great St. Bernard and the little Arena were always quiet and peaceable after tea. Mr. Dand, when he could get away from his work in time, never failed to come to the nursery, expecting to find the woman whom he had set up as goddess of the hearth in her place, prepared to soothe and solace. He was seldom disappointed. He could, every evening, if he cared to do so, learn the trivial household news of the day from Amy, who held the ends, as it were, of all the domestic tapes, and could reel them off for him, lightly, merrily, giving to the few contretemps that occurred under her rule, all their effective humour by way of minimising them. Mrs. Dand, lying on the sofa in her boudoir, with her advanced novel, agreeably stupefied with the scent of the many flowers with which she chose to fill her room, "'I think they have souls, don't you?' she would say, did not always know when her husband had returned. He did not intend her to do so, until, rested and smoothed down by half an hour with the pale, sympathetic companion, he would seek the handsome, exigent wife, submit to her fussy recriminations and conventional archnesses, and present her with the obligatory book or spray of rare flowers or box of sweetmeats that he was now careful to bring her nearly every day from Oldfort. Edith noisily claimed to be so remembered. He was to show by gifts of this sort that he had been thinking of her during office hours, which he emphatically had not, or of Amy either. A hurried dart into a grocer's or a florist's or a stationer's last thing before he started for home did the trick and pacified his wife. Amy, had she filled that position, would have had more sense than to entertain such an absurd notion of his marital duty. The maiden knew that men must work, and women may, if they like, weep and remember the palmy days of courtship. Mr. Dand never brought Amy anything. She had all. She had his love. He had never given her a present, not even a book, yet Amy was a great reader. She was not very kind to books, and had the illiterate habit of turning down corners to mark her place. This practice disgusted Mr. Johnson applied to the rare and recherché volumes in case G, which Amy, like himself, was made free of. She did not in the least appreciate Baudelaire and Casanova. It never occurred to her innocence that in allowing these masterpieces of morbid literature to be lent to her, she was giving possible detractors an opportunity of saying that Jeremy Dand was corrupting her mind. But Mr. Johnson, who might have been spiteful enough to say so, took very little notice of her. Mrs. Dand often rallied him, in her heavy-handed fashion, for neglecting Amy. She was bent on bringing them together. 
but he came less and less to Swarland. Amy pretended to suspect some attraction at Oldfort, and pleased Edith by chaffing him about it. She did not fear him. She feared no one now. She assumed she could read people's thoughts easily, and she read his in this way. He thought that the new baby, and the husband's gratitude to the wife for producing it, had finally anchored Jeremy Dand to domesticity. Her own pernicious charm was effectually neutralized by the long-desired son and heir. Life was established on a perfectly correct and desirable footing. Amy felt happy and at ease as she sat one coldish afternoon in the summer, by the side of the tiny fire which the North Country servant thought fit to keep up in the nursery grate. Little Erina was playing with her scripture bricks, at a dignified and independent distance from her dear Amy. She was getting old now. But the dog whose life Amy had saved, though not its figure, for its rheumatic crippled legs spread out on both sides like a spatchcocked chicken, and always would, lay asleep on the least bit of the gown of his protectress that it could collect. It was not proud, but then it was younger than Erina. A towel hung on the rail of the fender, and reflected its downy whiteness on the young girl's cheek. She was less pale than she used to be, a white rose that some cunning chemist had been trying to colour artificially. The chemist was ease, mental equilibrium, if not happiness. Though Amy was stouter, handsomer, she looked older. The habit of constant authority, the drag of responsibility, procured that inevitable alteration in her. A mission in life necessarily ages. The lazy arch of beauty is apt to disappear from the mouth that habitually domineers, albeit beneficially. Amy's lips were straighter, more like a bow than an arch. Her eyes still preserved their inwardness. People called her sly. The pose was not attractive. No woman would have consciously adopted it. It meant that the young woman, exposed continually to the chances of attack, fenced in but by bluff and bravado, refused to allow the enemy points. She knew she could not afford to give these explicit indicators free play, and while gaining piquancy, or beauty, risk to lose a good situation. Hers was the face of a fighter, hard, sharp, disingenuous, pathetic and fascinating. Jeremy Dand admired her, but in spite of himself. The full-blown, orchid-like beauty of Edith was the type he had preferred, and still preferred. He remarked, to-day, grudgingly, as he came in and threw himself into a chair, "'You are getting quite a fine woman, Amy.' "'Am I stout?' "'You are like a nice, soft, grey cat, before a fire, palpitating with heat and comfort. My cat. My Amy.' "'Shh! Deep in her bricks!' I remember you when you first came here, a poor little discredited adventuress, all your moyens discredited, your eyes like some lean hungry dog. Somebody had kicked you. You were under the weather. And if it were not that I am acting up to my principles, making no trouble for you, exacting no love toll, there you would be again. Amy made another warning gesture in the direction of the child. All right, I'll be careful to use long words. Here they are. Can you understand them? You and I, Amy, have been wise enough to abstain from the obvious, which is also the normal, and instead of taking the usual way out of the awkward hole into which we have got ourselves, 
we have hit on the best plan of all to stay in it not many a pair of lovers could have hammered out such a clean solution of the problem as we have as i have that is you have merely had the sense to fall in with my view quietly that's your share it is not difficult for you for you are so nearly passionless you have as it were no traitor in the citadel i hope this is vague and veiled enough for the tender youth at our feet not so very said amy apprehensively well but about your own feelings let me hear amy laughed do you really want confirmation of your easy assumptions go on it saves trouble you say my state of mind is so and so what is the use of contradicting you you would never believe me and a man always says a woman is cold when he can't get her to flirt with him brutal but convincing sometimes dear amy you talk like a bus driver but please let me go on thinking you cold your physically correct and mentally rakish attitude is a necessary condition of our alliance you are suggestive not blatant enticing but not manoeuvring go on like this be careful to leave me in doubt don't excite my male arrogance don't plunge me into despair amuse me but don't stimulate me and all goes well you know said amy with apparent want of consecutiveness i always think it looks shady when two persons who live in the same house think it necessary to resort to paper to corresponding don't call it corresponding you did not answer why should i it seems to me that i have plenty of that one has every opportunity of saying anything one wants to say viva voce yes but in a houseful of women like that over which i have the honour to preside and which you lighten with your presence one is never positively sure that one will be free from interruption one cannot take measures to secure it of course that would thoroughly flutter the dovecote and i am a man who likes to finish his sentences you might leave that to mr johnson amy observed but surely it is quite simple for you you have only got to destroy them after you have read them i destroyed it before i had read it said amy why somebody came into the room when i was reading it and i put it straight on the fire in the fire yes but this was literally on the fire the wind came down the chimney and took it and blew it up and out at the top i suppose for i never saw any more of it it probably went over the country to oldfort or blois i don't suppose anybody there would understand it i asked you a question what sort of question an impertinent question one i dare not ask you verbally lest you think me inquisitive a question whose answer i have sometimes very deeply at heart just now my dear as i look at you i don't care i am able to keep down the jealous savage in me and take you as you are as i expect you to take me but i don't take you please remember she said gently no you sheer off at once you sent disloyalty to another woman a mile away i don't believe that you have any principles amy any rule of conduct except one your duty to your neighbour and a woman's neighbour is always another woman very true they call that virtue refusing to poach in the real world i don't think one has any right to interfere with vested interests she indicated erina and the person who has pegged out a claim first and cultivated it though it's only a claim should be left alone 
but I own that there doesn't seem to be any particular reason why two persons who have elected to be each other's supreme interest. What a way to describe falling in love! Why will you dot the eyes? Well, I say, I don't see why they shouldn't pool that interest and take bravely their chance. Chance of what? Of pulling it off, of being happy or unhappy together. When you speak so, it makes me want to ask you that question verbally. Ask it then, she said boldly, but with some internal tremors. She was like a hedgehog, afraid that someone is going to touch its bristles. Men never would let well alone. Here in this house her aim was to avoid personalities, to escape compliments, to evade analysis and grounds for introspection but her zest for casuistry was constantly leading her off the safe platform of generalities. No, it has nothing to do with me, after all, a detail unworthy of you and of me, the truth about something not very vital, a mean preoccupation of mine. We are not on those terms and never shall be. Besides, you are you with all that it took to make you. Here's nurse come up from her tea. I must go and change." The nice fat woman was trembling all over. "'What's the matter, Janie Somerville?' asked Amy kindly. "'Miss Aaron, put that box of bricks of urine away in the cupboard,' said Janie Somerville prudently. The cupboard was at the other end of the room. "'Well, we all like you, miss, all except that cockney cat that looks after the boy, you know who I mean. And she's been telling us that she got something you'd be fair glad to have, Miss Amy. A bit of paper,' says she." Did she show it you? No, Miss Amy, couldn't get it from her nohow. It's a letter written by the master, seemingly. Who to? She wouldn't tell us, the brazened creature. She had it in the front of her dress. She kept crackling at us all the tea-time. My word, I'd have liked to tear it off her wizened body, that would I. And Susan and Bessie Andrews, too. We're all o' your side, Miss Amy, and we don't none of us care a brass farden what you've been and gone and done. Not if you was as black as that coal, we shouldn't go against you. Thank you, Janie, but I have done nothing, and I am not black. Don't you take any notice. These sort of threats never mean anything but spite. Say no more about it, or she will think she has frightened me, and will be coming blackmailing me. I must be off to dress now. Amy talked too intimately to servants, and she forgot that the innocent country girl would not be likely to know the meaning of the ugly word which had stayed over with her from the old life. Only an hour ago she was congratulating herself on having left that life pleasantly behind, Mr. Johnson, the one witness of it, pacified and innocuous. Now it was all back again. A compromising letter, servants' whispers, servants' condolences, all the materials of a horrid local scandal, and poor innocent Amy Stevens in the midst of it, the heroine. She knew she was innocent, technically, of course, but how inconceivably foolish she had been, and therefore not innocent, for in her eyes folly was the worst of crimes. She had been weak, flirtatious, commonplace. She had allowed this crank, this queer, fascinating man, in whose house she lived, to drag her by silken ropes of satisfied self-love into an equivocal position, untenable, indefensible, in the eyes of the non-elect of the spirit at any rate, who that heard it, and they would all hear, would be able to grasp the significance of the extraordinary, ultra-mundane terms 
on which these two persons had chosen to base their intercourse. Their alliance would be set down as an ordinary vulgar flirtation, or worse, a guilty intrigue, and no one would realize, except herself, that vanity, not love, had been its mainspring as far as she was concerned. Jeremy Dand had pampered her starved self-esteem just as he had fostered her physical health and encouraged her to take tonics and flesh foods. He had given her consideration, he had given her sympathy, and he had insisted on throwing love in, an unconsidered quantity. She had tacitly, but only tacitly, so as not to offend him, declined the love, but she had accepted the consideration and the sympathy. She was unhungered, and she ate, of the delightful food of intellectual community. I got it all on false pretenses, she thought, cad that I am. She had never loved him, and she felt nothing but anger towards him now. It was his fault that this bomb had burst into the midst of their peace and quietness. Her own carelessness had been the fuse, but that was all. Why had he insisted on writing to her, in spite of her strict discountenancing of any of the paraphernalia of intrigue between them? Manlike, he had inconsiderately gone his own way, in one of those vital trifles which wreck peace and stability far more surely than the big risks that lovers take, in fear and trembling. She was not fatuous enough to imagine that Jeremy Dand had acted thus imprudently because he cared for her as much as he did, or even thought that he did. The material facts of his existence were against anything of the kind. His particular mode of life could not but paralyze the springs of feeling. Accidental, fleeting emotions alone could touch him. She saw how it was. She was a woman on the spot. She was fairly pretty, and not unamusing. He had noticed her. Why not? She supplied a wholesome interlude to the main interest of his life. He grouped her with other ameliorations of his state, with change of air, a charming concomitant of his Saturday to Monday. But he was a miser in grain. He liked money for its own sake. He enjoyed collecting it and seasoning its squalid, brassy taste with the pleasure of the chase. To this ignoble end he was willing to spend the greater moiety of his days in a stuffy office in a smoky city, among dapper clerks and superintendents and businessmen, while his eyes, of beauty unfulfilled, rested on the staring columns of soulless ledgers, and his ears were assailed continually with the unmusical shriek of railway trains, passing to and fro almost under his windows. What a stereotyped life! His affairs of the heart, whatever they were, must be got through in the few hours of the day absolved from business, allotted to repose and relaxation in the country. He literally had not time to love. Amy, unique among women, realized the tendency of the age to Americanize even the tender passion. The old, thoroughgoing, exacting, dallying form of mental exercise must mend its pace nowadays or be left out of the list of amusements. By all the laws of romance, a hero of a novel should not work for his bread or divide his attention in any way. But the amatory crises of the lover of today, their depth and intensity, can be determined merely by the amount of energy left over from the day's demand. A brain that has dictated, 
several dozen of typewritten communiques sent replies to a hundred or so of terse telegrams is apt to look on love-letters merely as the personal form of correspondence that it is obligatory to indict by hand and with diminished tension jeremy dan's office held him prisoner strictly till six o'clock short shrift then for the services of the heart and its needs in the devitalized hours succeeding edith dand had never grasped this fact she was a young old-fashioned woman she always contrived to suggest by her manner if not by her speeches that she expected great things of her husband leisurely combinations of sentiment calm appreciations of delicate shades and grapplings with delicate situations that she actually strove to create for him one must never let a man go to sleep she was known to have said thus on principle she prodded him up continually with unexpected assertions of femininity she even permitted herself to be arch he took refuge in the sullen good humour the brutal impartiality of attitude towards demonstrations of all kinds which had become natural to him a man cannot live in the house with three women without growing pachydermatous the peace was kept only amy realized that by the time the master of the house returned home at dayfall a gentle slack piece of run-down mechanism he wanted no immediate winding up he was all unfit for amatory treasons plots and stratagems he was feebly inclined to play at everything including the game of passion amy soothed and charmed him with her placability her passivity the result had he but troubled himself to discover of the sheer paleness of her feeling for him or any man and of her very determined avoidance of the shoals into which even her slender amount of vanity might lead her she had been circumspect with the greatest ease she took it as the guarantee of her immunity from amorous infection mr dand was her friend and benefactor the arrangement was his not hers but she did not deny to herself that the innocent intrigue had amused her but she had wanted no nonsense of love-letters not a particle of her entity connived with him or rose up and justified him in this act of supreme and unnecessary folly it was going to cost her a home amy was thoroughly annoyed both with herself and with him men are always selfish and careless but she the woman far-seeing prudent what had she been doing why had she allowed herself to be lulled into a sense of false security by jeremy dand who was a good actor and who had assured her continually that it was all right it was not all right it never could be all right to ally oneself with another woman's husband even on the most moderate terms these platonic arrangements between men and women were never worth while and always came to grief why in the name of her own dear-bought wisdom had she let herself be caught thus lazily philandering leading a double life in the interests of a passion that did not even exist gyrating round and round a sort of humbert safe empty in spite of the man's easy assumptions of all amorous securities they did not love each other jeremy dand would not care to marry her even if the famous incriminating letter should supply valid grounds for a suit to be brought by edith dand moreover amy knew well enough that mrs dand would not even in that unlikely case 
have the heart to part from her husband. She would not even think of applying for a divorce. She loved him too much, and she believed too strongly in herself and her power to chase the image of another from his heart. Womanlike, she would insist on his throwing Amy over, and having removed the partner of his folly, would at once apply herself with supreme force of vanity and patience to annihilating all traces of the influence of her rival. Dand would be obliged to let her go. The man always gives way in such cases. Their friendship, this declared love even, would count as nothing. She would be paid her wages in full, and perhaps a little over, and then driven forth, away from the child, prohibited from all further communication with the things she cared for most in the world. She dressed and went down to dinner. End of chapter 20 Recorded by Lisa Reichert